millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I remember well when the Reserve Bank was just a bond-selling agent of the Treasury. He would not be willing to reconsider the Greek program. A smaller-than-expected increase for consumer prices. About the United States economy added almost 5 million jobs. These numbers aren't anyone's opinions or political views. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So UK politics is in turmoil because the Prime Minister and the dearly departed Chancellor pushed ahead with an agenda of growth, growth, growth. Now it seems there's been a swift transition to tax rises and spending cuts. That doesn't sound very growth friendly, does it? But there's a bigger question. Do we actually want growth? I mean, isn't the Bank of England trying to slow things down to stop inflation rising further? But in the longer term, can we keep growing, depleting the Earth's resources? So if we became part of the anti-growth coalition that the British Prime Minister has been talking about, what does that look like? If we have no growth, does that mean we'll all be progressively worse off? And is it even possible to stop growth, even if we wanted to? Big questions this week with me and Steve. Yeah, it's been a hell of a week, hasn't it, in uh, UK politics. Liz Truss, uh, the British Prime Minister, or at least she is while we're recording this, but we are recording this more than 10 minutes ago. So uh, by the time you get to listen to this, who knows what will have happened. But she was there originally with their plan to go for growth, growth, growth. The three things she said she was going to focus on by that familiar method of making the rich richer, knowing full well their money will trickle down onto the lesser workers. Unless, of course, they decide to use that money to buy a yacht or a holiday home in the Caribbean uh, or just stick it in some sort of uh, dubious money-making scheme that doesn't employ people, in which case we never see it again. But, Steve, I know you are part of the anti-growth coalition that she spoke about. In fact, she specifically suggested podcasters and the BBC were part of this anti-growth coalition. So here we are. All right. But, uh, you know, has she... In a way, sort of got a point. Do, do we need growth? Is that is it something that we have to have? Because if we don't, it seems we actually do go backwards. So I'm curious, why is that? Why does that happen? Why can't we we just have a, a steady economy without going backwards? Why do we always need growth? It's because we're living in, in a fossil fuel bubble and we're not even aware of it. We're energy blind, as Nate Hagen says. And what we've been doing ever since the Industrial Revolution uh, We've, we've, we've put down the growth to magic. We've called it technology, okay? And certainly technology has played a role in the magic. But the real source of the magic is the, is the black stuff we dig out of the ground that's been there for 100 million years or thereabouts, are the fossilised remnants of, few, of past plants and past animals. And burning those at a huge rate is why we've had growth. And if you go back, if we were having this... Con- if a podcast existed in the time of William the Conqueror, we would not be discussing the rate of growth under William the Conqueror versus what it was being under Ethelred the Unready. Okay, uh, we would simply take say that uh, Ethelred's gone and William the Conqueror's on top, and that's all that matters. And there'll be no no change. Uh, the whole idea of change, the whole idea of growth, 
has only become part of our lexicon since Adam Smith. But if we don't have it, we feel like it's still not answering why we feel we're going backwards. So if we did, if GDP was zero. Well, no, uh, not, not GDP. Would, GDP is zero as output. The mean rate of change of GDP was zero. Yeah, so GDP growth was zero, I should mm. say, sorry. Yeah, if GDP was zero, then we'd have a bit of a problem, wouldn't we? Mm. But if, if, if the growth was zero percent, then I would feel worse off next year, wouldn't I? Well, you'd feel like this one year is the same as the next. And the, the whole, and this is one thing I find like in contrasting uh, Asian philosophy and particularly Asian religions to European religions, um, the Buddhist religion, which we, and, and, and even the Hindu to some degree, uh, have this idea of the cycle of life, the whole idea of reincarnation and rebirth and so on and so forth. And there's a cyclicality to their way of thinking, whereas us, we've got this... Not We used to be linear, and that would be a flat line. Now it's an exponential curve, and we think the, the, exp- the slope of the exponential curve can remain uh, the same indefinitely. And that's and this is one of the definitions of growth. Growth is... like If you say the percentage rate of growth of the economy is 3%, then what you're saying is the rate of change of the economy is 0.03 times its current level. Okay? Now, that's what gives you exponential growth. You expect every year the rate of change of the economy to be equivalent to 3% of this year's level of the economy. Yeah, so expect growth on growth on growth. And that is, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, which is the three focuses of Liz Truss. So she's talking her three-year strategy, growth, 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 obviously. Yeah. Uh, She's the wrong, uh, wrong, wrong person at the wrong, (laughs) wrong, wrong time. (laughs) Right. But if, uh, okay, but I guess the, I think most people now actually would be happy just to see their, their, their living standards maintained. They feel as though it's under attack now that a chunk of that's going to be inflation of course that we that we to maintain our living standards uh we need to we need to see our wages uh go up in line with prices so the and for for that to happen we feel like we, we we're, we're told well if you want your, your your wages to go up you've got to produce more and so that's where that growth comes from but of course if we're if we're told that then that is business owners trying to get more out of us isn't it so they're trying to improve their productivity so is that part of the problem that we we're seeing this growth because of uh, companies trying to increase their margin all the time which of course is well, what I mean, they're there to do if you, if you look back um over the last uh, 80 years when actually the concept of gdp was only invented uh, I, I think by Kuznets, Simon Kuznets, in the uh, early post-war period, and that came out of the measurements that were necessary during the Second World War itself to measure just you know how many tanks are we producing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What's what's the focus upon producing tanks under people's capacity to consume bread, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The measurement of it actually began back at that point. So before then, we didn't actually have a, a statistic which we could quantify and look at the rate of change of growth. But throughout, the argument has been: don't complain about the distribution of income let's just let let all a rising tide lifts all boats that particular argument now in fact we're finding in fact that that anything but true um, and it's been used as a salve not to talk about the distribution of income but now that the growth is starting to collapse and it will collapse there's just i think there's absolutely no chance of us avoiding that then distribution matters because if you don't even up the distribution when the cost of, of, of consumption is rising, then the bottom 20%, 30% of the population could be in starvation territory and they will not put up with it. You will see the sorts of riots we've started to see in France and Italy and, and the UK in the last four to six months. 
Right, but they can't. I mean, if 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 twenty percent of the population is not consuming because they haven't got the money to consume, that's not good for the uh, for the producers, though, is it? I mean, it's in their interest, obviously, to make sure that there's a decent standard of living for everybody to be able to afford to buy their goods. Surely, nobody thinks at an aggregate level, unfortunately. But the, mm. the, the point is, and this, this is why I come back to talking about how unusual is in human history to focus upon the growth and the size of the economy. The way you used to grow your economy in the past was to expand into somebody else's territory. Now, we've got a taste of that going on in Ukraine right now, uh, but fundamentally was that you don't need to increase your territory. You uh, can increase the size of what you produce on your territory instead. And that shift has been enabled by the fact that we're exploiting fossil fuels. And the trouble is we've exploited them far too much and we haven't develop the capacity to generate energy in ways that don't create carbon dioxide. And we're now reaching absolute crunch point on that front. And that's why I'm part of the anti-growth coalition. Uh, We have to go in reverse. And when you go in reverse, rather than not worrying about the distribution of income, that has to be absolutely primary in your mind. You have to ensure that you can hold society together. And that means that everybody has to be able to get at least enough to stay alive while you reduce the aggregate level of consumption. But the but we can increase the aggregate, can't we? I mean, it's so the so Liz Trust. I love I, she is just a gem in terms of some of the terminology she comes out with, and she's not the first person to talk about growing the pie, which is which is interesting because you can't actually grow a pie. It's like concrete, isn't it? You can't grow it. <laughs> it's um, but if you uh, you know you, you can only cut it up into. We're going to need bigger a bigger slices. oven. Uh, yeah, yeah. But can you can you grow this? You know, can you build a? I don't know what the analogy is. Something else that'll grow. I mean, and we we slice it up. Surely, if uh, if everybody is employed in companies that are becoming more efficient at what they do, then those companies will make more money. They'll pay more in wages, and therefore the economy will grow. Whether we're actually any but better that, off. But, but that that efficiency is the problem. And mm. I mean, we don't realize how dramatically efficient our production systems are these days. Uh, particularly like a, the, the, one of the favorite examples, of course, is, is uh, lighting. How much energy are you using to, to light your, you know, put, you know, have light inside your house at night? And the answer is down to of, of the order of 1% of what we used to use in terms of energy for lighting because of LCD lights and things like that. And in general, in manufacturing, the focus has been, with the, given the competitive pressures that firms are under, they're trying to reduce their cost of manufacturing all the time. So the whole just-in-time schemes we've had, uh, Deming's ideas about how to, re- how to improve quality and improve quantity at the same time, all this stuff means that, in fact, in the efficiency of converting the inputs into useful goods on the outside, we are pretty close to the limits of the efficiency we can achieve in, in, in any case. Wouldn't um, we have said that ten years ago, though? You know, and yet we continue to create that that efficiency. So I mean, it's well, so. Yeah, so the, the, what the, 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 I think what you're saying yeah. is that we can have growth, but it's got to come for, through increased no, productivity. No, no, I'm going to say we've overshot. We have drastically mm. overshot what we can cope with in the planet, and we have to reduce the energy use and the waste we dump into the into right. the. Um, I mean, one so thing zero, just, so zero yeah. growth economy. It sounds like on the one side you're saying, well, that's going to happen anyway, but yeah, on, it's going on the to, other. Yeah, it's a question of whether the whether the negative is imposed by the by the collapse in the productive capacity of the biosphere, or whether we put the negative in and spread the burdens across the whole of the population as we reduce ourselves back towards the footprint we should have, which probably is the order of one third to one quarter what we're currently consuming and what we're dumping into the biosphere.
Right. You are listening to First Hand, the Anti-Growth Coalition here on the Debunking Economics podcast. Uh, you, they are on podcast. Liz Struss is right. Uh, but how do you do that? How do we, how do we get zero growth or, or re- reduce uh, the, the size of the economy? Because businesses will always want to grow. I mean, businesses are there because they want bigger profits. They want more influence. I mean, even a small business person, you know, if they feel like they're going to move forwards, they want bigger margins, they want more customers, they want more mm. profits. They are the things that they strive for. If everyone thinks like that, then you are going to have a growing economy, surely. And, uh, you know, there's not a lot you can do to stop that unless you stop educating people <laughs> so they don't have the skills to run their own business or you tell people, no, you can't do that. And you can't tell a small business owner who's worked hard that you've uh, you, you've got to stop now. You've, you've done enough. How, yeah, and, how, and how do you stop that, that one, growth happening? That is one of the dangers of capitalism. It, it's, uh, capitalism is a... I mean, William Bormore gave a great expression about it. One of the few economists who... Uh, if we want, if Liz wants to take the anti-growth coalition further back than William Bormore is one of her targets. Uh, but Bormore talked about capitalism developing under what he called the, the cowboy economy. And the idea of cowboy economy, you've got this enormous land out there ignoring the Indians, which Americans are good at doing. Uh, there's plenty of expanse to expand into. You can expand all the time, and that's the cowboy economy. And what you do in your little patch doesn't matter because there's so much virgin land out there to exploit. He said, we've now moved to the spaceship economy. And in the spaceship economy, anything you dump in the spaceship stays in the spaceship and affects how well the spaceship functions. And capitalism is very compatible with the cowboy economy, and I would argue not compatible at all with a spaceship economy. So we have to say, if we, we want to continue the technological development and the development of knowledge and the understanding of, of, of how to uh, improve things over time, which has been a, you know, a, a classic positive product of capitalism, then we have to make that compatible with doing it on a biosphere where not only are the limit, does it impose limits on how much we can do, we're already exceeding those limits and we mm. have to go backwards. And that, that is going to be a serious challenge to the whole capitalist mentality. Yeah. Okay. So how is the question? Yeah. We'll look at that when we come back. It's the Debunking Economics podcast uh, with me. I'm Phil Dobby. He's Steve Keen. And we're back with you in just a second. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. 
So, Steve, we've talked about how uh, we, we are, you know, ideally, we'll, we should be seeing ourselves in this spaceship where uh, nothing comes in, nothing goes out. Uh, and we've got to uh, we've got to circulate what we've got in effect, but um, mm. and without any room for growth in amongst all of that. But we've also talked about how, you know, in capitalism, businesses want to want to grow. How do you, I mean, and that has to be a healthy thing, surely, because that's where innovation comes from. But how do you stop them growing? First of all, I mean, do you put taxes up? Do you introduce regulations? Uh, because I, obviously again, business I, I, owners, I, I, come, they all have this drive to grow. And through that comes innovation. And if you stop that, you stop innovation, don't you? Yeah. I mean, that's one of the great, this is one of the reasons that uh, in terms of competitive socialism, one reason socialism failed versus capitalism, when we had genuine socialists. You know, we, 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 I've got to use the word genuine carefully. I know a lot of Marxists on that front, but the Soviet Union uh, and, and, mm. the, and the Soviet satellites and China and Cuba uh, all grew very, very slowly. And the reason that the low growth was actually a low level of innovation. And uh, one of my favourite examples, I'll use it yet again, is the um, and what 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 is a 1973 Cossack? It is a 1973 version of the Russian motorbike called the Cossack. And where can you find a similar bike? By a 1942 BMW. It's identical. Um, so there was no technical change in the Soviet system. Yeah. Be- because the emphasis was upon um, central planning. Well, yeah, but in, the, in, the, the reason there was actually again, there was, it isn't just mainstream economists who make mistakes. <laughs> There's also Marxist economists who can make mistakes. And when it came to Soviet planning way back in the nineteenth, uh, the tens, and the twenties of the, the last century, um, the so the the, the, the the Bolsheviks gave the task of working out how to turn Marx's reproduction schema into a planning system for the Soviet economy. And they gave it to an engineer called Feldman. And Feldman uh, took Marx's reproduction schema. And what Marx talked about was he had a, he divided the economy into, well, I'll I'll start with three, but it's mainly two, uh, three, three sectors, consumer goods, investment goods, and luxury goods. And he said, consumer goods require heavy industry and light industry to produce. Investment goods require heavy industry and some light industry to produce. The luxury ones uh, uh, need the inputs for both, but aren't, aren't used as outputs in the other ones. And he said the fastest way to grow is to grow heavy industry because you, you do, you, heavy industry is what produces consumer goods, but you focus upon growing heavy industry. So you make the machines that make the machines, and therefore you have this exponential increase in productive capacity. And initially, consumers do pretty badly, but then ultimately you'll overtake the West. And that was the basis for Khrushchev slamming his shoe on the on the. Uh, uh, desk at the United Nations with his speech saying, we will bury you. What he meant was, we will bury you in consumer goods. Fail. And why did it fail? Feldman's scheme only worked while there was a limitless supply of labour to move from the uh, from the farming sector to the industry sector. Once you hit full employment, that source of population growth disappeared. And the mm. only way you could grow the economy more was through innovation. But with the five-year plan and its whole focus upon promoting heavy industry rather than, rather than light... To make your light industry quota in particular, the best thing to do was to make last year's motorbike. And so yeah. you didn't get innovation and the economy saltified. Right, so, so you've done, what a, you've done is yeah. you've provided substance to my question then, isn't it? But by the way, that's it, I think what Khrushchev is doing is is what Liz Truss is trying to do now as well in that you know she's talking about growth, growth, growth at a time when there is just no spare 
uh, jobs. You know, pe- yeah. people are employed. Uh, so, so she, the only way she's going to in- increase uh, gr- the growth in the UK economy, and you know, it's the same in most of the world, is through productivity. And we we haven't seen that increase significantly for for decades now. Not in the so UK, how, no. Yeah. So, how do you stop growth and still have innovation? Then, what's what's the answer? Well, the answer has to be focusing on the role of engineers in the whole thing. And this is, I mean, I'm a great fan of engineering and engineers in general, as most of my supporters on Patreon and Substack know. And the reason is that, as Elon Musk put it once, engineering is the only thing that is equivalent to magic uh, because you use the technology to do stuff which, without the technology, appears magical. And we've been doing that for the whole history of capitalism. Uh, Like, for example, one of the simplest examples is lasers. We use lasers... Uh, to uh, cut uh, semiconductors. We use them in incredible range of of fields. And part of it is one of the real challenges was producing a blue light laser. And that involved uh, somebody knowing their quantum mechanics, working out the the nature of the quantum mechanical effect of a, uh, and I'm going to stuff this up by my engineer friends, but uh, the quantum mechanical effect of of a pulse of light through a, through a, a semiconductor to generate blue light, which is actually involving quantum mechanical effects. It can't work without quantum mechanics. That's the real magic that's going on there. So you say, guys, we're in a real pickle, guys and girls in engineering. We're using far too much of the planet's resources. We have to drastically reduce the amount we're using. Uh, We have to go away from carbon-based and non-carbon-based energy forms, and we have to reduce our load on the planet, and we have to get out of the linear economy we're in now, where you go from goods to waste, uh, to get to something resembling a circular economy. That's all over to putting as much as you can into the engineers. And the analogy there I've got is World War II. Right, but uh, wartime is very different. So if we could do this without war... We are in a war. No, we're in a war. We don't realise it. We're losing, by the way. (laughs) <laughs> All right, a war against the against the the environment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, well, we're winning in that case, aren't we? The environment's <laughs> losing. But the um, but but the, that means switching from capitalism, doesn't it? What you're talking about is switching from capitalism. It's it's it, it it's almost a form of central planning. Where we, the we have to have we have control. to have constrained capitalism. Because unconstrained capitalism was the cowboy economy of William Bormol. And we're well past mm. the cowboy. We're now, we're now in a, um, what you can call it, you know, the spaceship analogy. And if you think about, uh, I mean, the, the classic spaceship, in fact, if, if we ever get there, will be if we build a civilization on Mars. Because um, that civilization must be technologically based. You simply can't survive there without incredibly good technology, which we still haven't invented and right. sufficient of, of course, by the way, um, you, can, you, would, you, would, you want to dump your waste into the rest of the biosphere because the rest of the biosphere is barren and your waste might actually generate a more functional biosphere for humans in a future, you know, future millennia. Um, so you, you actually want to generate carbon dioxide and put that into the atmosphere. You've got to find a way to retain the, et cetera, et cetera. But that is the spaceship. And when you're in the spaceship, the way you think about innovation and the way you think about um, growth is completely different and we need that mentality on this planet because we've damaged its capacity the biosphere uh, to support sustain the life forms which have evolved during it and of course that includes us right so i'm i understand what you're saying with the the, the spaceship by the way just to you know uh, we uh, and, and uh, you know the importance of engineers i i'm not sure i like the idea that engineers are deciding who makes what what we consume 
how much of it is made, that, that tends to get no, back it, to the... It, to... it wouldn't be engineers making that decision. It's society trying to make it because if you don't make it consciously, it'll be made unconsciously for you by the biosphere. So I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but it seems relevant somehow. Yesterday mm-hmm. was a nice day. My daughter rides a horse. My wife and I went to watch her riding in the countryside. It was near a, uh, a nice uh, country house hotel, which is fairly near us. Uh, we went in, and uh, their afternoon teas are extraordinarily expensive, so we didn't have that. But we had a, a cup of hot chocolate and a piece of banana bread, mm. and um, it didn't cost very much money. And it was a, just a brilliant day. And it wasn't an expensive day, but it was the best day I've had for for, for weeks, I'd say, because we saw the delight of our daughter riding her horse, mm-hmm. and it was nice being in these plush surroundings, and uh, you know, and and that was not a you know we didn't consume much of the planet in that and uh, and there was, wasn't an engineer involved in determining what, how we'd spend our day either it was uh, you know it was it was actually uh, people who understood how to make pleasant surrounding in hotels and, uh, and and people who have a love of horses and that was all you know that was all good low growth mm, mm. Uh, and it was just enjoying what we have um, and, and, and that's that's a very important point because it's not the engineers making the decision there in that sense, it's the artists making yes. those decisions. And yeah. like I was just thinking about it because I'm, I'm, I'm packing to yet again move country and looking at all the objects I've got and then watching shows like, you know, Game of Thrones and so on and somebody passes on an object to them and it's treated with great reverence. Here with objects, you, you're chucking aside USB cables and out-of-date this and out-of-date that and we just mm. throw stuff in the garbage bin. So we don't I have the respect. Yeah, we don't have the respect for objects we used to have before capitalism. And the reason is that before capitalism, these things were unique products. If somebody made a blade for you, made a sword or whatever, it was a unique uh, creation. Uh, and you would, if it was a good one, you would hang on it for evident and pass it down through future generations. Now, swords are, if we're still using swords, I think, we're, I think they're going to come back into fashion, unfortunately. Uh, we, you know, a dime a dozen, they're made in, you know, they, they sold through Kmart. They've all got a possibly a higher quality than the swords of, you know, of maybe less durability, but a higher, you know, uh, cutting capacity and so on than the ancient swords we don't give them any respect because they're just commodities we've commoditized everything and we need to go in reverse and decommodify society while still hopefully maintaining the capacity to innovate yeah but you see we wouldn't like that because uh, we'd be saying but we still need our iphones don't we we still need our gadgets we still well, need the, the, thing the, that the stuff you, you would you would then find that you know iphones would have to be made to be repairable uh, mm. to be to be uh, upgradable if that was ever necessary. Uh, the whole idea that with the consumer throwaway society we've got, that would have to go out the window. And as you say, you spend more time watching your kid ride a horse and getting a pleasure out of that rather than you know going out and buying the latest piece of high-tech technology, which will be obsolete in 16 months' time and you'll dump it in the garbage bin. I was I was had an interesting discussion with a guy who is a conservationist on uh, who was sitting next to me on the Eurostar last week. I was going down to Paris for a couple of days with work, mm-hmm. and uh, and he worked a lot in. He spent most of his life actually living in Africa, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, he talked about African communities who were, you know he was trying to stop them. Big part of what he'd been doing was trying to stop them planting crops to serve the West because it was denuding their ground, mm-hmm. and also you know. Deforesting uh, a bushland that was uh, that was killing off the wildlife, 
and yet wildlife actually was a, a big source of income for them. Mm. Uh, but uh, but he talked about a lot of these communities. He said, uh, "I said, you know, what's the what's the influence? How's globalism changed their changed their life, and how do they do they respond?" And he says, "Well, actually." It's um, th- th- these communities don't really change very much, and they they don't really want too much. They don't have anything, but they don't want anything either. Uh, and generally, the economy is hyper local. You know, it's it's mm. the community. They uh, you know it's they they're almost you know in, in parts of Africa still very much tribes people living in, in a in a community where everybody does the work. Uh, and uh, it's globalism, isn't it? Really, which is our, we can take the blame for our race to destroy the planet uh, if we were more local. If in the UK, for example, and he said, you know, if it, the UK is the same as the rest of the world in that we, you know, we're denuding fields, farming fields, because we are planting crops that are in demand on a global scale, whereas in the olden days, farmers would rotate crops and we'd buy what was available. Uh, because you know, because we weren't shipping it all around the world, so we'd we'd accept the fact that products were were seasonal. Uh, so, but it's this race to uh, you know to consume more. But if we you know in the parts of the world, there's not that anymore. But we don't want to be like them. We don't want to be well. Like we a, we, Afri- we actually Afri- I think we do want to be like them. We and that's one of the reasons I think those those societies may survive better. What's coming our way in terms of global warming and climate change than. The West can because if you know two days food supply runs out in cities, there's riots and starvation. Uh, two days problem in uh, in an African community, you go to you know somebody whose wheat field is, uh, hasn't been as badly damaged as somebody else's wheat field, and you the, the localism gives you a resilience and robustness that we don't have. So I mm. think those societies may do, but we actually may we may. Uh, you know, having put them down for the last 60 or 70 years, we may envy them in what's coming forward because at least they're close to the absolute essentials of production, which, you know, fundamentally is food. So the uh, the argument for competitive advantage was, is where it all started to go wrong then, is it? Again, I blame Adam Smith and David Ricardo in that particular case, yeah. But the whole focus upon... I mean, we've had a growth-ignorant uh, theory of economics promoting growth. And this is the ridiculous thing, because if you ask an economist, where does growth come from? Although, say, uh, Hicks neutral technology, you know, this is the A factor in their Cobb-Douglas production functions. Oh, how did that happen? Oh, we haven't got a model of that. Uh, well, you know, the best they did was uh, the work done by Paul Romer some time ago. Uh, but they, they, they put it all down to technology, and they have no idea why technology changes. They don't have an evolutionary theory, in other words, of where the change comes from. When you take a look at where, where the changes come from, it's come out of engineers working out ways to use more energy and put that energy into our lifestyle. And because we've just it's, it's happened to all of us at all at the one time, and we each have our own little personal perspective on, on, on that energy, we've been blind to it. We don't actually see that the that if we compared ourselves to a king two centuries ago, then walking into a room and turning a tap and having hot water out is the sort of thing only a king could enjoy two centuries ago. Now... Mm. We all expect to just turn the tap and out comes hot water. And, and that is an excitement which we're blind to the fact that the hot water exists because we're exploiting energy, we're exploiting too much of it, we're overloading the planet. All these things are what is making degrowth the future we face. It's only a question whether we have degrowth the way we can cope with it and want it to con- and we can maintain our societies or have degrowth which destroys our societies. Well, let's, well, let's see if we can make it through winter and the uh, the hot water always comes on, But uh, unless you're a king. The, um, 
But are you saying then the only reason we've seen growth over the years, over the centuries or over the decades that um, is, is because we have made greater use of energy that's that's the only driver Fundam- that, fundamentally well, I, yeah and we've done we've done as much as we can on that now so so we have to accept the fact that we, we've, we've, gone, we've gone, gone too far if we'd stopped back in the 1970s when limits of growth was published and before william nordhouse stupidly trashed the concepts in that book without understanding it uh, if we'd actually done the change 50 years ago then we could do this in a gradual fashion and we could hang on to capitalism and and we might have half as many people on the planet uh, as well, so the burdens that would be experienced by a, a, a smaller number of people in making the transition. Instead, we've overshot drastically, and growth, growth, growth is completely the wrong way to think about what our future is. And as, as it seems to be the case, we're installing idiots at a time we need savants to be running the system. So uh, there's a thing called the happiness index. I wonder, you know, some people have said, well, maybe that's a better measure of how we're all doing rather than uh, this focus on GDP, which is a number. So happiness looks at health, psychological well-being, for example, you know, your sense of purpose, time balance, community, social support, the level of uh, education, culture, uh, and, uh, you know, just how you can have a nice day in the countryside uh, and feeling great about getting a, a hot chocolate, which might have cost £6 rather than £4, uh, but not really caring because the surroundings, the ambiance, as you say, you know, the, the, the artistry behind it all made you feel good. So a happiness index might somehow measure sort of those things. This has been going for 10 years. The happiest places in the world are Finland, Denmark, Iceland, which I find hard to believe. God, can you imagine living in Iceland? Switzerland, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, Sweden. Uh, and the UK is 17th, the USA is 16th, Australia is 12th. So all basically that the Scandinavian countries by and large are doing quite well uh, on all of this. Uh, but these are high taxing countries, aren't they? So you wonder whether, uh, you know, and so much is provided by the, by the state. So a little less capitalism, but they are still capitalist economies. So is tax part of the answer? Is it just a, a, a question of redistribution of wealth that will, uh, that will help solve this problem? Uh, yeah, and I think redistribution is going to be absolutely critical. We've, we've let the, the, the over-wealthy do what they wanted. I mean, the classic in the Netherlands, you mentioned the Netherlands in that list. One little object in the Netherlands that somebody's not getting much utility out of right now is Jeff Bezos's yacht, which the, which the Dutch will not destroy a bridge to let him move his, uh, his gigantic yacht out of, the, um, out of the construction zone into the ocean. Um, and we need to say, you know, the, the reason is they want to maintain... The, the existence of a heritage bridge, as it happens, uh, and they're not going to let it go down. They're going to focus on heritage, not consumption. And we need that mentality to be dominant rather than the uh, I want a bigger yacht mentality of, of rampant capitalism. Yeah, that's. Do you think Bezos might have thought about that before he had his yacht built there? <laughs> he, thought uh... he, he thought he could actually buy his way out, but they've told him money doesn't buy this particular uh, element. Again, we've got to decommodify how we think about the world. And that's, yeah. you know, it's a question whether we decommodify uh, with a functional society or decommodify with a broken down one? I just still don't understand how we can see zero growth uh, enforced on us in a way that isn't going to stop companies from saying... See, I, I, I don't go with this argument that Liz Truss is using, which was the argument about why they got you know wanted to get rid of that 45% top rate tax and take oh. it down to 40%. Uh, because they thought, you know, it was a disincentive for innovators to innovate because 
you know, five percent is not going to make any difference. But if you if you if you started to put serious constraints to say, well, you can't grow beyond a certain size because overall the economy can't grow, then why would people say, well, okay, I'm going to use my brain power to try and drive a company forward because that's where innovation is going to come from. They would just have. go. I'll just. I'll just work for some. I'll just go and work for the government. Wouldn't now, you? What, what what you'd what you'd have is uh, as well as uh, sheer profitability being an indicator. You'd also have you know your your product can, can be redeveloped if it reduces the load on the planet, not vice versa. But the first emphasis, what we've got to put absolute first and foremost is this is the viability of the biosphere, and we're destroying it right now. We're going to be paying the consequences of that very very soon. It won't be in the lifetime of your kids. It'll be in your lifetime. Right, so we need to find a way. Including Liz Truss, though, maybe not during her prime ministership. (laughs) However short that will be. So there needs, so, um, okay, so you can profit if you are profiting, if you're you're being innovative in a way that is going to lift the weight on the planet somehow. So so just just in the way that, you know, companies that do well during downturns are the companies that make us, make our pound go or dollar go further. You know, they tend to be companies that are solving problems with, you know, like cheaper food, for example, or, mm. uh, you know, a, a cheaper way of... Uh, or, or less food with less pesticides in it. Yeah. So, which is where that idea, and we won't dwell on it because we've talked about it before, and I, we probably should explore it more, uh, but it, it's the simple answer to all of this, the idea which actually David Fleming came uh, came up with, I think he's the guy who originally came up with it back in uh, the, the late 90s, this idea of personalised, tradable energy quotas that we've talked about, sometimes called personal carbon allowances, the idea that you, you, know, you get a, a certain allowance uh, for the amount of carbon that you can use, uh, and if you don't use it, you can trade it. And if someone needs more, they have to buy it off you. Uh, but ultimately, there's a limit on the amount of because uh, that would drive that innovation, then, wouldn't it? Because you'd say, well, okay, the the uh, capitalism can survive, but it has to survive alongside these quotas. So if you're running a company and your company finds a way that you can do stuff using less of those uh, that that less of that quota, then go for your life, and you can be a your innovation is being used to try and do more with less influence on the planet. I mean, it's it's hard to find arguments against this thing, isn't it? And that's what I'm working on with Adam Hardy with the ecocore.org website. We need, we need a system, initially a parallel currency system, uh, for rationing, but we have to find a way to ration yeah. the uses of resources on the planet. Absolutely. Yeah, the problem is it has to be international, doesn't it? Because if you no, start, it can, import- no, it, it can be domestic. We can start. But if you're importing goods from overseas and you don't know the carbon involved in those, then uh, you then no, you gonna- do know the carbon involved in those. It's easy to work that out. I mean, this is the you you you, you know the the whole idea. We can't look to go to go to a local supermarket shelf, grab anything off the shelf, and read off the ingredients. Uh, we'd just be adding carbon dioxide to that list of ingredients. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, there's the problem. The government would know everything you're doing. It would all be would be on a database somewhere, wouldn't we? That's the. But I mean, maybe we just have to live with that. I mean, we well, actually hand it over Facebook to the private to give it to Optus. <laughs> okay, exactly. Or give it to Facebook. They already know. Let's. Mm, oh, yeah. We we know what you're doing. Yeah, just a bit more information that'll be useful, uh, and they can uh, yeah target ads more effectively. That's what. So that's a uh, that's a win, isn't it, for society? Mm. <laughs> well, I mean, but it, maybe out of everything we've spoken about, that is the only answer 
because there's no no other way we can preserve capitalism. When we know if we ditch capitalism and go down the Marxist, uh, uh, the uh, anti-growth coalition road of telling everyone what they can do, th- this is the only way that you, you retain freedom and keep innovation, isn't it? You have to have something which enables innovation to continue, definitely. Well, that's the positive of the whole in fossil fuel age is the extent to which innovation has become you know, part of the structure of society. But you've got to innovate within the bounds of the, of the biosphere you're in, and we're currently overdoing it drastically. And you know, if we want to have capitalism in the future, it's got to be in outer space. It can't be on the biosphere. Right, it's got to be a closed system, in other words, you're saying. It's got to not be an open system happened. where you can dump the waste into the sun. And at the moment, that's not where we're dumping right. it. Very good. All right, well, uh, I feel a bit more optimistic normally than when I talk to you, perhaps oh, well. because there's a way out. <laughs> or, or, or maybe you're just having a bad day. I must be having a the- bad day, yeah. <laughs> I better go do some horse riding. Yeah, you'll love it, tell you. Oh. Uh, having said that, I haven't been on a horse for years and years, but they're trying to get me on there. Uh, but I'd rather sit in the nice hotel having a hot chocolate, to be honest with you. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that, that, that to me, and amongst it all, when you work hard, actually, it's those... I mean, that, that's the truth, isn't it? And that, that puts it all in perspective. We all are in the rat race. We're all trying to make money to survive. And it's those moments when we're not actually in the rat race is when we're happiest. So we just need to find a way that we can do more of that and less of the stuff that's actually consuming and destroying the planet. Indeed. Almost. I feel like now I should be doing church services on a Sunday as well. And, <laughs> and then we should all tend to God. No, no, that's a step too far, isn't it? Uh, we'll talk to you next week, Steve. <laughs> Bye-bye, my son. Turning me- needlessly uh, messianic at the end there. That's it for the uh, Debunking Economics podcast for this week. We are back again with another one next week. I'm Phil Dobby. He's Steve Keen. Thanks for listening. The Debunking Economics Podcast. 